0: Um, this morning, I have the, the privilege of introducing our guest speaker, but he's really not really a guest. He's been here since he was born in this church, and that's Joey Anderson, but it's been a joy for me to know him these past five years as I've been the youth pastor here at Trinity Church. Uh, when I came here, he was in high school, and it's been amazing to see his journey and his growth as a man of God over the last five years. And so now I get to serve with him as a as a co-partner in the youth ministry at Trinity, and and what um, I think the one thing most about him that I love and what he's grown incredibly with is his love for the Word of God. And so this morning he's going to share that love and, and what God has put on his heart um, in his Word this morning, and so I'm really excited for us to hear that, and I get to hear it in youth group each Sunday, but um, I'm excited for all of us to hear the gift that God's given him to share um, the Word and, and how much it means to him. Um, at this time, I'd like to j- invite Joey forward. So I wanted to open today talking about a very well-known and popular hymn. It is the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford in the year 1873. Perhaps what is less well-known is why Horatio Spafford composed such a piece. See, Horatio Spafford was a successful businessman and lawyer in Chicago. He had a great family, a loving wife, Anna, and five children, four daughters and one young son. However, in the year 1871, tragedy struck The Spafford family. Horatio and Anna Spafford's young son died to pneumonia in the year 1871. Later on in that year, the Great Chicago Fire struck the city, and Horatio Spafford lost much of his business and his home to the fire. Two years later, Anna Spafford and their four daughters were on a ship headed to Europe. Horatio Spafford would have joined them, but had to stay behind to take care of some business. Anna Spafford and the four daughters were on that ship for four days when it struck into another ship in the middle of the night. Within 12 minutes, the the ship sank. All four of the, the Spafford daughters died on that tragic accident. Anna Spafford is the only Spafford to make it alive, and upon making it to Wales on the other side of the ocean, she sends a telegram back to her husband. Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio Spafford quickly gets on a ship to meet with his grieving wife and is on that trip 4 days into the trip the captain calls Horatio Spafford to the cabin to his cabin and he tells him he tells Horatio that this is a place where he lost his four daughters it is said that Horatio Spafford wrote this hymn during this voyage where he shares the depths of his soul he writes when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot you have taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul. John Piper says this about the hymn. No song quite gets it in terms of its cadence and its tune, it does not, and especially its words. It does not get any better than sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Through it is well. It is well with my soul. Today we are looking at the book of Job. And when I originally came to Pastor Gary about wanting to preach, I had everything that I wanted to talk about all in my head. I knew exactly what I was going to say and how it would go about. But God took that and flipped it on its head. And I remember one of the first meetings with Pastor Gary, he told me something that kept on coming back into my mind. He said, whatever it is that you preach, preach that what you need to hear yourself. And so I began to think, what is it that I need to hear? What is it that God is laying on my heart? What is the truth that God is trying to speak into my soul? What I need to hear was that there was a purpose to my pain, that God was working in it, that the suffering I was facing was blessing me and drawing me closer to God. Pain was accomplishing something great in my life and ultimately giving me the greatest blessing I've ever come to hold, and that is God himself. As I came to this passage with a different mindset, I began to see it in a new light, so today we're looking at Job chapter 33, verses 19 through 30. And so if you'd like to open there right now in your Bibles, and if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 825. Um, so today we're talking about pain and the purpose it has in our lives. And so I, um, as I was reading the passage, I came upon three stages of experience that the passage shares with us. Um, and it's three stages of experience that we all face in some way or another when, we come, when it comes to pain. And perhaps you're at the first stage, perhaps you're at the second, and perhaps you're at the third, and perhaps you've never known the third stage. And so here's the three stages. When pain is all there is, you are not alone. There is a blessing. And so first we're going to be opening up um, and we're going to be looking at Job 33 verses 19 through 22, and we're going to be talking about when pain is all there is. And so we'll read that. It um, It says, or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meals. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit, and their life to the messengers of death. If we're going to read anything of Job, you had to know that we would begin here. Talking about pain. The book of Job is synonymous Um, so the book of Job is synonymous with suffering. You cannot seem to talk about Job in any aspect with at least talking about pain. And so, in fact, um, see, Job was a great man. In fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 3, God says this about Job. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He gave, see, he worshipped God fervently. He gave sacrifices all the time, not only for himself, but also for his children. See, any time there was a great banquet or party, Job would gather all of his children up after, and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of his children, so that his children would be purified before God. However, Job soon came across an immense amount of pain, just like Horatio Spafford did. See, one day there was a meeting in heaven. There we go. There was a meeting in heaven and between God and all his angels, and Satan decided to crash the party. See Satan comes to God and he says to God he says really the only reason that Job worships you is because you give him all these things. If you took all of that away certainly God or certainly Job would curse you and want to die. And so God allows Job or allows Satan to strike Job and Job in the course of one chapter loses all of his livestock all raided and killed by raiders. He loses all of his servants also killed by raiders. And then, worst of all, he loses all of his children due to a freak accident which the building collapsed and killed all of his children. It is said that Job tore his robes in grief and said that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. See, Job had stayed true to God. God had proved Satan wrong. However, Satan was not satisfied. He came back to God and said, surely a man will do anything to save his own skin. If you curse him with diseases, he'll, give, he'll cur- certainly curse you and want to die. And so God allows Satan to do these things. And Job, and Satan strikes Job with horrendous boils and pain and suffering to his body. At the beginning of the book, Job suffers some of the most horrendous pain imaginable. Without reprieve, Job is told of the loss of his servants, his children, and all of his possessions, Soon after, it seems as if Satan has not had enough, and Job is stricken with disease and boils so incredibly painful. And then we see that the last bastion of hope for Job is his wife. He, she is his safe place, his comfort, but he loses her as well when she says these words in Job chapter 2, verse 9. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. See, We're talking about Job today because pain is prevalent today as much so as it was back then. Suffering is a byproduct of the fall of man, where sin entered a perfect world, where everything was at rhythm with God and disrupted it. Sin entered, and because of sin, we as human beings experience suffering, physical pain, such as broken bones, sickness, and disease. Emotional pain, such as depression, anxiety, and a whole host of other mental illnesses. We also suffer spiritual pain, a longing in our souls to know our Creator. Perhaps we cling to Job's story because he is somebody that all of us can relate to in some way or another. We pick up in Job towards the end of the book. Enter Job's friends. Job has had just three separate conversations, three different times with three of his friends. Thirty chapters of Job, 42-chapter book, is dedicated to Job and his friends' conversations. And as you get close to the end, as a reader, it sort of feels like the backseat of a car on a family vacation. So I don't know if you guys can relate to this or not, but I certainly can. Uh, My family took a lot of vacations, and I can remember one specific time. We were all in the backseat of the truck, and it was me and my siblings on either side of me. And it had been a long trip, and we were trying to find things to do to pass the time. And so me being in the middle, my my siblings found out something new about me that day. And I found out something new about myself as well. I have detached earlobes, which means when you flick them, they jiggle. And my siblings thought this was the greatest thing ever. So they began to flick my earlobes and laugh and had a great time of it. But for me, it was kind of like being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so began the bickering and the whining and all the complaining as they flicked my ears and laughed and see perhaps you can in some way relate to this because everybody everybody is whining about their own things everybody is right and everyone is wrong and no one is getting anywhere (laughs) looking back I can only imagine how annoyed my parents must have been and eventually they would step in and they would stop it and this is why, this is, the reason I share this story is because in the book of Job, we see one more friend of Job, and that is Elihu. See, Elihu is the silent one. The Bible isn't clear on whether or not Elihu was there from the beginning or if he came later. But the Bible is clear that Elihu had heard enough. And it was time for him to open up about Job's misery. Elihu lays down this analogy, per se, that we just read This parable about a man and his redemption. This story plays parallel, at least the beginning, to what Job has dealt with. If you look back at Job 33, verses 21 and 22, he says, Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden now, stick out. They draw near to the pit, and their life to the messengers of death. See, Job was experiencing much similar pain to the man Elihu was speaking of. In the first part, we see a man who is at the ends of himself. His pain is so great that he detests food. His flesh wastes away to nothing. This seems to describe where Job is at pretty well. Perhaps it relates to you as well. Irreprehensible pain, a longing in your soul that is eating away at your hope. Perhaps you face cancer or some other disease that has given you three months to live. Perhaps you have just come back from a funeral where you've had to bury a loved one or a dear friend of yours way before you thought was their time. Perhaps you are in a marriage with someone that you just don't believe that you love anymore. See, we're all, we all have storms. We all have things that toss us and are unrelenting in our lives. It is your wish to be better, to understand, but you don't. And so it is that pain is all you see. However, if you are familiar with the book of Job, you know that the book doesn't end with Job cursing God and dying. In fact, it is quite the opposite. See, Job may seem like he is facing his pain with no help and no hope of relief. However, in the background, behind the scenes, where Job cannot see, God is there. And that brings us to our second experience of pain, second stage. We are not alone. If you look at uh, Job thirty, chapter 33, verses 23 and 24, Elihu continues, Yet, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, Spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Now, before we go any farther, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Elihu. See, when I originally came to this passage, I believed that Elihu was the first voice of human reason that we see in the book of Job in a really long time. I believe that Elihu argued for the betterment of Job, that he wanted him to see the errors of his ways when he said that God wasn't just in what he was doing. And I believe to an extent Elihu does do that, but also to an extent Elihu is a very sinful and human person. See, Elihu sometimes makes jabs at Job's character that were unwarranted. I mean, we see in the first chapters of Job, right, in Job 1.3, that God spoke highly of Job. And if God, his creator, speaks highly, then Elihu's comments are unwarranted. But then I came, and so I began to struggle with this. I struggled with the passage, and so I went to look at other passages. But eventually I was reminded of one thing by Paul in the New Testament. He says that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. And so I came back to the passage, and I saw that even through Elihu's perhaps glaring problems. He played a role, a bigger role, a bigger in God's picture. And the passage that we are looking at today is going to show us that things that were meant for our harm, God meant for our good. And one thing I hope you leave here with is that God's promises are concrete, his ways unstoppable, and his love unrelenting. See, as readers of Job, as bystanders outside the story of Job's life, we can see things that those within the story cannot. Think of it as dramatic irony as that what you would see at a play in a theater. Much of Job is spent in discourse between Job and his friends. But in the beginning chapters, we see another set of conversations. Conversations between God and his angels, and in particular, God and Satan. It happens at the beginning because it is valuable information to keep in mind as we unravel the book of Job. See, Elihu makes mention of this and finally brings forth the idea outside of heaven in the, in the story of Job, that God is for Job, that he has been since the beginning. Perhaps a concept we would all agree to in a church setting. As we're sitting in these pews, we can nod our heads and agree and say, Of course God is for me. Of course God loves me. But what about when you are in the midst of your deepest pain and struggles? When you cry out to God and say, God, where are you? I thought you loved me. If you cared for me even an inch, you wouldn't be doing this to me right now. I think back to a time when I was little. And like many children, I feared the dark, and more importantly, what might lay in said darkness. So I had nightlights, and sometimes those weren't even enough. And sometimes when my parents leave the room, I would get up and I'd turn on all the lights and fall asleep to a well-lit room that, of course, showed all the corners and what didn't hide there. And there were other things, tricks you could say, that I adopted. I would sleep with my head facing the wall. I would sleep only inches from the wall. And then I would also have my covers over my head. And the only thing that stood out was my little nose, just so I could breathe. See, I did all these things because I felt alone in the darkness. And I was scared. But most nights my mom would come in and she would sing me a song. And this song calmed my worries, and to this day I remember the words. You are my light and my salvation. You are my strength and nothing shall I fear. When the darkness falls and the enemy strikes, with the fear and the night and the shadows of dark, he will fall and I will stand. Because I'm standing here in the palm of your hand, never leaving, never left alone. See, that's a song from my childhood, but I sing it so many times in the back of my head, because truth does not grow outdated. See, the same God that offered to calm my fears when I was but a child afraid for nothing is the same God who offers to calm my fears now. For I am never left alone, and I can never leave the palm of his mighty hand. If we look at Job chapter 1, verse 12, in Job chapter 2, verse 6, we we see the Lord's conversation with Satan. In Job chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And in Job chapter 2, verse 6, we see, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. In both instances, we see that power is given to Satan to do certain things in Job's life. Did you catch that? Given. That's the key word there. Given. They were not Satan's to begin with. Satan did not do these things to Job because he could do them in his own power. Rather, he needed God to say so. There are powerful freedoms attached to this concept. The idea that there is nothing that we face in our life through which God has not willed. We see this in the story of Joseph in Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21, when Joseph is talking to his brothers after all that has happened. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And then ultimately and most importantly, we see it in the life of Christ, in our Savior. See, Jesus is fighting the most dire battle in history. The most dire moment in history is when Jesus goes to the cross and fights the battle that we fight every day and wins it. But see, in the moment when Jesus dies on the cross and goes to hell to pay for our sins, it seems like he loses that battle. But we see in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, when he's talking to his disciples before he goes, he says these words. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one can take it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I've received from my father. See, I think this shows that Job is not alone in his fight. He's not shaking his fist at an empty sky. He's not crying out to a callous God who cares nothing for him. Job is crying out to a God who is in control, who has never ceased to be in control, who will always be in control. If this is true, then there's a purpose to pain. There's a purpose to your pain, and there's a purpose to my pain. For God does not do anything meaninglessly. Your pain and suffering is not a coincidence or from some random alignment of the stars. But if there is a purpose, what is it? And that brings us to a third and final stage of experience, experience of pain. And perhaps you haven't reached this point in your pain today. But I believe it's there. And that is, there is a blessing. And if you'd read with me the rest of Job 33, chapter, or verses 25 through 30. Elihu finishes and says, Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. What a transformation, right? The man Elihu is describing has just experienced radical transformation from a man on the cusp of death to a man with youthful vigor and rejuvenated spirit. See, verse 26 speaks of the man's union with God, that he would come to God and pray in him, and, and delight in him. And God would delight in the man. Think back to where we left off on the second main point of this passage. What is the purpose to pain? In my own life, I can think of back um, of a time where I, was, where I thought that pain was meaningless in my life. See, I believed it accomplished nothing. And it was, Mary, it was much of these thoughts that led to depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts in my life. Because I thought to myself, if pain was meaningless and life was filled with pain, then pain it's, and then life itself was meaningless. Sort of the idea behind logical deductions, right? So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. But my ideas in that regard were challenged when I read a quote by a man named Randy Elkhorn. And he, he questioned my ideas about the purpose evil and suffering may have in my life. Here's what he says. While in the larger story, this is not the best possible world, it may very well be the best possible means of achieving the best possible world. A world that had never been touched by evil would be a good place, but would it be the best place possible? If we acknowledge that evil and suffering facilitate the development of significant human virtues, then we must answer no. If you tell God he should not have allowed evil and suffering, then you are saying he should not have allowed us to experience compassion, mercy, and sacrificial love. In order for those characteristics to develop and become part of us, God had to permit evil and suffering. If God merely wanted to develop men and women who would behave correctly, he could have bypassed freedom, evil, and suffering. But if he intended that his image bearers see their genuine need for him and be brought to loving obedience, then how would we propose that he improve the process he uses in our lives. I remember one of the first passages I ever memorized in the Bible, other than, of course, John 3.16, which I learned when I was little and didn't really quite understand the purpose behind the passage, was Isaiah 55, 8-11. See, I remembered this verse. I memorized it because it gave me hope. It gave me hope that in the middle of my suffering and pain, even when I didn't see what God was doing, That God had promises that he made to me that were not going to leave me until they have accomplished what he had set for them to do. So Isaiah 55, 8 through 11 says this. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, declares the Lord, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For just as the rain falls from the heavens and does not return there, but gives food to the sower and bread to the eater, so are my words that come from my mouth. They shall not return to me empty-handed, but shall accomplish that what I have set for them to do. When I think back on my life, there are definitely things I wish I could have changed. There are things in this life that I wish I could take back, things I wish I never had to deal with, things that weren't my thoughts on the way my life should have gone, not the ways I would have chosen. But each moment of pain and suffering, each ounce of evil that Satan intended for me, God intended for good. I am altogether closer to God than I was three, two, or even just a year ago. And the biggest blessing I've ever come to hold, I came to treasure because of pain and suffering, and that is my God. That's the blessing we all need. Not the hashtag blessed when you get to Starbucks and there's no one in line in front of you. Not the hashtag blessed when you put on a coat you haven't worn in forever and Put your hand in the pocket and you pull out a five dollar bill. Perhaps even we are at fault for doing this very thing. I know if I'm honest, I've done this many times, but it begs the question of us, the same question that Satan poses to God in the beginning chapters of Job. Does Job not worship you because of the things that you give him? How many of us are guilty of this very thought process? How many of us deep down love and worship God, not because of who God is, but because of what God gives us? I think back, I remember seeing a Facebook on Facebook one time, this status that you're supposed to, to type amen and share, and something great will happen in your life. This one was type amen and share, and God will bless you with many blessings. See, these little status things fill me with sorrow. This one especially because I thought to myself, Is God himself not the blessing? Am I not so overwhelmed by God and his goodness, his holiness and perfection, that all other things are like dirty rags in comparison to him? Is God not so real to me that I'd rather have the blessing of knowing Christ more than even my own life? There's a story of a martyr in the early church that I simply cannot talk about God being the greatest blessing without mentioning her. Her name was Perpetua, See, let's listen to her story and see one of the people who took to live is Christ, to die is gain to heart, bore in her soul and gave her life for the greatest blessing that outshines everything else. See, Perpetua was 22 years old at the time of her martyrdom. That's much the same age as me, and so that hits home. She was a woman in the early time of the early church and at a great increase in the persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. People were dying by their faith in droves. Willingly giving their lives because they refused to offer sacrifices on behalf of the Roman emperor. I think what draws me most to the martyrdom of Perpetua is what she sacrificed for the sake of Christ. See, Perpetua was laying down some real, tangible blessings. Blessings given to her by God. She laid them down for one greater blessing, and that was God himself. See, Perpetual was a young mother. She had an infant son at the time, no no more than a year old at the time of her persecution. She also had a father that loved her dearly and wanted to only see her live for her son. On multiple occasions, he comes to speak to her, pleading, tearing out his hair for her to save herself. Remember that question that Satan asked to God in the beginning chapters of Job? That Job only worshipped God because of the things that was given to him? We see that for Perpetua, the answer was simple, no. Perpetua was so sold on the reality that God was greater. Listen to this excerpt from early Christian martyr stories by Dr. Brian Litfin on the trial that sealed Perpetua's death and her actual martyrdom. A few days later, a rumor circulated that we would be granted a hearing. Then my father arrived from the city consumed with worry. He came to see me in order to shake my resolve. Have pity on my gray hairs, daughter, he said. Have pity on your father, if I am worthy to be called your father. With my own hands I tended you like a blossoming flower. I favored you over both your brothers. So don't cast me aside now to be scorned by men. Think of your brother, your mother, your aunts, your son. He won't be able to live without you. Don't be so stubborn or you're going to destroy us all will never be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. My father said these things like any loving father would. He kissed my hands and threw himself at my feet. With tears in his eyes, he didn't just call me his little girl, but addressed me as a lady. I felt so sorry for my father's misfortune, because out of all of my relatives, he would be the only one who wouldn't rejoice at my martyrdom. I attempted to comfort him, Everything that happens at my trial will be God's will, I said. Rest assured that we are not upheld that we are upheld not by our own strength at that moment, but by God's. And so he left me, grief stricken. The day finally came when while we were eating lunch we were suddenly hustled to a hearing. We were taken to the main public square. Immediately the news ran through the neighborhood nearby, and a huge crowd gathered. We climbed up on the prisoner's platform, Everyone with me confessed their faith when asked. Then it was my turn. At that moment, my father appeared with my baby boy. He dragged me away from the steps and urged, "'Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby.' The governor, Hilarion, who had recently obtained jurisdiction over capital crimes when the previous governor died, said to me, "'Spare your gray-haired father. Spare your infant son.' Just make a sacrifice for the emperor's well-being. I replied, I won't. Are you a Christian, Hilarion asked. I am a Christian, I declared. And here we read of the day of Perpetua's death. She, however, had to experience some pain. Perpetua shrieked as the sword was thrust between her bones. Then she herself guided the young and inexperienced gladiator's wavering hand to her throat. Perhaps we might say that such a great woman who was feared by the demon within the executioner couldn't be killed unless she herself allowed it. I am astounded by the example set before us. The men and women of faith who considered such trials light and momentary in light of what they knew awaited them. That being said, many of us will not be martyred for our faith. We may never be brought to our knees because of persecution. Still, we ought to live in such a way that speaks to the hope and blessing we have in God. Horatio Stafford lives this way when he writes the hymn, It is well with my soul, after losing six out of eight of his children. Perpetua lives this way when she sacrifices the life of her son for Christ. Job lives this way. See, all of them live boldly with this hope. That God still sits on his throne. I think the answer to Job's pain is the same answer we need to hear. We find this in Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. When Job is replying to one of his friends, he says this. Oh, that my words were recorded, with an iron, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Many of us wish our voices would be heard, that there would be an end to the suffering and the struggles that we face. And Job 19 hits it right on the head. It is so much more than meaningless pain and suffering in our lives. The trials of this world become much easier when you look to Jesus, the cross, and God, the Father who forever sits on his throne and who is in control, rather than the storms we find ourselves in. The answer is not some elaborate truth, but rather this. The greatest blessing you will ever come to hold is God himself. That's the truth Job came to find. That's the truth others in the Bible found. The truth that those in the early church before us found. And it is the truth that awaits you. Though pain and suffering we may face, I pray God would find us grateful to ever know him more. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Dear God, I pray that you would give each of us the opportunity to know you more. Lord, I pray that we would be able to see through the pain and suffering in our lives the storms that we all face, the things that toss us, Lord, and we would see that you are a good Father, and that you love us, and you want us to only know you more. And I pray that we would. I pray that we would go out this week and understand that the things that we face are not the ultimatum, but that you are, and that you sit on your throne, and you await us. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.